This is Tech Hive's Clockwise Podcast, episode number six for the week of August 12th, 2013. Clockwise, four guests, four topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, the tech podcast with no time to spare. I'm your co-host, Dan Morin, and we're joined this week by a veritable rogues gallery of guests. I can say that, but there's only two of them. But um, to my left is our first guest, uh, PC World Senior Editor, Michael Brown. Michael, thanks for being on the show. Right, Glad to be here. And across from Dan, yes, it's me. That, of course, is the voice of my co-host, Jason Snell. Yes, hi. I am Editorial Director Jason Snell, and sitting to my virtual left is Macworld Associate Editor Serenity Caldwell. Hello. Hello, Jason. Thanks for being on Clockwise. Thanks for having me. I'm already spinning in a clockwise direction. Each one of us has brought a technology topic that we believe is worth the attention of the group. But we don't want to waste your time, so we're only going to be spending about five minutes per topic. And I am in the host chair. It's an official chair. So today I will go first, and then the action will, as always, move clockwise. Uh Uh-huh. So I'm going to kick it off, and I want to talk a little bit about something that's very near and dear to all of our hearts, and that is security. I hope it's near and dear to your heart. Um, In particular, I want to talk about two-factor authentication, also called two-step authentication sometimes. This is that system where when you try to log into one of your accounts, it sends like a code to your phone, and then you type in that like six-digit code, and it's like, all right, cool, you're probably who you said you were. Um, and so I've uh, I've enabled this for a bunch of my accounts, my Google account, my Facebook account, my Twitter account. And, you know, it's kind of gets to be unwieldy when you have it for so many accounts because you start getting all these text messages for codes and you have to go and plug these things in. And some apps require it, but some use different services. So you have to use a bunch of different apps. And or uh, So my question for you guys is. Is this something that you guys actually use? And if so, do, do you think it's worth the, the trade-off in terms of the security that you get out of it? And and if not, is there is there an alternative or do you just try to make really great passwords? So, uh, Michael, I'll let you you kick it off. Well, I'm probably the worst person to answer this question because I <laughs> make lousy passwords and I tend to reuse them. You're, which is that, one of the that just cardinal makes you the sins. average password user. <laughs> We're not here to shame anybody. <laughs> I I don't use two factor identify or two factor authorization. I probably should. I think it's a good idea, uh, but yeah, you know, I also think it's a good idea to floss my teeth three times a day. <laughs> I mean, you could argue that that people who use low security passwords would be perfect for a two step because you could keep using your low security password because somebody would need your phone too in order to do that. That that's true. That's true. It's something I really should look into, and I I just haven't. I've been. Tied up with so many other projects, it's uh, plus I don't think I tend to think that I'm not interesting enough to anybody to that they'd want to uh, try to get into my private life. I am in an, a transitional state from being very much like Mike and having uh, terrible passwords that I use the same password on every site. And I still have some of those, although they're mostly for things that aren't important. And in most of the places where I feel like it's really important, I've gone and I've done auto-generated complex passwords that I save in a password manager, which we talked about on a previous episode. But I do have some two-factor now. I have it on for Dropbox. I have it on for Google, for my personal Google account. And I have it on uh, for Apple, for Apple uh, Apple's new two-step for its ID. Um, 
And, you know, I like it. It's not super hard. I really like Dropbox and Google because they use the Google Authenticator app. So you don't even need to be on a device with a, with a, um, that gets a text message. You can just go to the app and it brings up a little number. Um, Apple really wants to send you a text message to your phone. And the only problem I have with this entire system, which is generally not, not that hard, and it does let me keep kind of lamer passwords, is that occasionally I'm back in, the, in, in, in bed with my laptop and I'm doing something and I'm logging in and I realize I have to re-log into Dropbox or to my Google account and it says, I'm going to send you the, a message to your phone or please look this up on your phone. And I think, oh man, the phone is on the other side of the house. I'm going to have to get out of bed and walk over there. And that kind of sucks, but you know, in exchange for keeping data integrity and not having my identity stolen uh, like Matt Honan had uh, a while ago who works at Wired and used to work at Macworld, um, I think that's probably not too great a price Your to pay. I would, hard. I would sign up for more two-factor authentication. I tried Twitter's and it didn't work quite right, but I think they're re- they're launching it again. I think it's a good idea. I think people should do it. I think using your phone as your, you know, or some other device as a verification of your identity in addition to your password is a nice idea. Well, I am very lazy about passwords, which is to say I created a bunch of really, really hard-to-guess passwords and really long passwords for my like 30 different major accounts that I have. And the idea of resetting those all again with two-factor authentication just makes me want to hit my head against the wall. But I do take care of some of the other – like I do the weird security questions because that's fun. Um, I just – it's so it's so much of a hassle right now, two-factor authentication. Uh, what I would really like to see is something a little more – biometrically tied, something I, – I, there's rumors of fingerprint analysis and scanners and things like that. I think we're probably still an hour, a year or two out from it. But I don't know. It's, two-factor authentication just bums me out right now because it's so complicated. It's totally harshing your mellow. It is. Well, th- so that's interesting. So I'm, besides making a note of whose accounts I can go hack now, um, <laughs> I am I, – I, I think glad that you brought up the Google Authenticator thing, Jason, because that's been my biggest frustration is like the – I've got like half a dozen ones set up and actually a different app called Authy, which is quite good. That's sort of a replacement for the Google Authenticator app does the same thing. But hmm. not everybody uses that same system in terms of like getting your two-factor code. So I have like a different app for my bank and then I get text messages for like three other different services. And I really wish there was a more centralized way of sort of combining that two-factor authentication with a password manager or something like that that could give you sort of the, the best of both worlds. But right now, I I think I took the Matt Honan tale to heart and just ended up trying to lock down as many of my accounts as possible, which may mean I just get locked out of all of my accounts when I eventually lose my phone. You know, it's it's a mess. The whole password thing is a mess, and there's a lot of people out there trying to exploit it who, to do very bad things. But at the same time, there aren't a lot of great alternatives. This, you know, at least the idea here of you having this rotating code that you can put in that's on a trusted device. I mean, it's you lose your phone, and then that's probably a whole other world of hurt. But it's um, it, it makes me feel like slightly better that it's slightly less likely that I'm going to get hacked. But um, I do recommend people look into yeah. it and give it a try and see if it fits in their lives, though. Right? You might say it's a step in the right direction. Oh. Anyway, so let's move on from that yeah, um, to our next topic, which was brought to you by Michael Brown. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this uh, smart home that I wrote a story about the other day. It's uh, in, in a rather unusual place. It's in Utah, which uh, I went to visit a couple of weeks ago. Um, but what's cool about it, well, no pun intended, uh, is that it's been certified as a net zero home. Uh, it's the first one in Climate Zone 5, which encompasses states that have 
hot summers and cold winters. So they require a lot of air conditioning in the summertime and a lot of heating in the wintertime. And this home generates all the electricity that it consumes using solar panels and smart uh, construction practices. It uses solar panels to generate all the electricity it consumes, and it uses a uh, passive hot water uh, system where the hot water or the water from the the wa- water supply for the hot water is piped up to solar panels up on the roof, heated to about 80 degrees, and then stored in a tank. And then when you need hot water to take a shower or wash your dishes, it pumps the water to a uh, on-demand water heater, which uses propane, uh, to heat it to 130 degrees, I think, whatever you know is appropriate for a shower. Um, but it, it it is connected to the grid, so if it ever they ever did need to use more electricity than they generated, uh, they would be able to do that. But their net consumption month to month is uh, zero. So I guess a good question for for this group is. Uh, what kind of uh, what do you have any of that stuff in your house and where you live? Do you do you have any conservation measures that you try to take? Yeah, I have a ten kilowatt solar system. Uh, I am not net zero by any stretch because I have so many computers and <laughs> IP problem here, IP cameras and other devices that are running all the time. But um, my electricity bill. I live in Northern California in the Central Valley. Uh, so it does get pretty hot yeah. uh, in the summer and it gets cold in the winter. And my electricity bill runs on average $100 a month. Yeah. So living in the Bay Area, my my uh, energy consumption is a lot less. I did buy a Nest and I love it. Um, but I have a single-stage heating system in my house. So it doesn't work for about six months of the year, if not eight months of the year. It just sort of doesn't do anything because we don't have air, any air conditioning um, I think it has made a difference in my energy consumption during the the, the rest of the, the time. We don't have any solar panels, and I've thought about it, but I, I, it seems like our energy consumption is not is so low, and, and what we're consuming is is gas because it's a gas furnace. That I'm not sure we would ever really make back what the investment in in solar. Plus, we have lots of fog, so I'm not sure how much solar we would actually get in Marin County. Um, but I've thought about it because it sounds like a it sounds like a fun idea. Um, and then I have a fan that I actually bought that I stick in a window because it gets cool in the evenings, even when the house is warm, and I blow cold air from outside the natural air conditioning of the, of the Bay Area into my house, and that actually works really great. Um, Serenity, do you have any power conservation things that you do? You know, I try a little bit. It's very hard to be conservatist. Um, when you're living in an apartment, I feel like. Right. You're because, kind of at the whim of your your landlord. Yeah, exactly. You can only do so much. Um, I held off on getting a, an air conditioner for a very long time, despite the fact that Massachusetts is a very hot place in the summer. Um, but eventually, uh, this year, I finally caved and, and went in for an actual air conditioner. But the really cool thing about this little tiny air conditioner is it's, it's teeny tiny. It's designed for a 16-inch window. Um, but it has a timer function so that you can automatically set it to only cool at specific times and schedule it to only turn on. So I don't have to, you know, constantly run it 24 hours a day to keep the apartment cool. I'll just, you know, run it for four hours right before I'm about to wake up or an hour before I'm about to come back in the house. And it works really, really well in that regard. And I've lately 
started timing showers and timing um, water usage with songs, <laughs> which seems <laughs> a little silly, but I just I made a playlist to figure out, you know, okay, if I've gone through this many songs, I've been in the shower for 10 minutes. And if I've <laughs> gone through these songs, I've been in the shower for 20 minutes and trying to... Do the songs get progressively more uh, messagey about how you're murdering the earth? <laughs> it's like the yeah. eighth song on the playlist, like just somebody saying, Serenity, why are you murdering me? This is the earth. <laughs> I'm crying. It's all they might be giants in there energy songs uh well i also live in massachusetts and it's that's one of those fancy places that it gets hot in the, in the summer and very cold in the winter um so yeah and i also live in an apartment which means my my options are limited i used to live however in an in the attic the third floor of an apartment and that was much worse because it got way hotter in the summer and way colder in the winter so i feel like i've improved upon that a little bit i, I wish i had the ability to do like a smart thermostat but you know again i'm kind of at the whims of yeah. a landlord i do have an air conditioner which i bought when i moved into this apartment about three years ago and uh that actually has made summers a lot more bearable so I, I, and I like the idea of the solar panels thing, except I'm always a little curious about how well that would work in some place like Massachusetts, which often, you know, is not maybe the sunniest place. If you, I'm not sure you could get like a full, like you could do like this net, this zero, you know, cost thing, but you could probably supplement your help a little bit, but doesn't thing. And I know there are weird policies and, and laws about that. Out in places like Utah and Arizona, there's a lot of sun. And I think that's, uh, yeah, they I'm have actually, an excess. I'm actually surprised that more uh, new homes in Arizona don't have, aren't just covered with solar panels because they need the most energy when the sun is shining down on those houses so it, it perfectly yeah, it makes total sense balances out. yeah I'm, i am heartened i see occasionally just you know uh businesses or you know commercial buildings that have solar panels on top and so yeah. I, I i applaud that i i wish there was a little i wish it was a little easier for consumers yeah especially those of us who live in uh, rental units like to do something that would help conserve i mean I, I try to turn all my lights off i have a light that works on a timer you know i have a couple things that i've done but other than that there's not a lot of options because you don't want to start like tearing up out your house. All right, it's my turn, and I am going to talk about something completely different. Um, earlier this week, I noticed that Apple did this big sale on iTunes where they were bundling uh, movie series together and selling you, you know, all the all the um, Godfather movies or all the Harry Potter movies or all the Star Trek movies for one price and it was it was a deal and I did what I what I discovered that I do a lot lately which is I make this this value judgment about downloads versus uh, buying discs or blu-rays especially since a lot of blu-rays also come with a downloadable m- version of the movie uh, and I actually ended up buying the Godfather on uh, on iTunes as a part of that deal because it was essentially the same price as the Blu-ray. Uh, it was a couple dollars less, and I got a lot of extra streaming convenience out of that, and uh, I wasn't probably going to watch all of the special features anyway, so I thought that was a good trade. But I still find myself asking this. So I wanted to ask all of you, uh, if you even do buy movies, which would be interesting to hear, how would you go about buying them today? Do you do you look for discs? Do you look for just downloads? Do you just watch everything on a streaming service? And let's start with Serenity. Well, I watch most, if not all, of my movies streaming now. I think. Um, does that include? Is that mostly services like Netflix, or does that include renting movies on iTunes and places like that? Both. I um, generally, if I want to watch a film that I didn't get a chance to see in theaters, I will probably rent it from Apple um, or iTunes or or uh, Amazon. I'd say the large majority of movies that I still buy are films that I really, really absolutely love and must have in a, you know, in a physical copy so that I can watch it whenever I want. Um, 
and that's not too many movies these days. Yep. So I, yeah, I find uh, renting movies unless it's a film that I absolutely must own. Um, and then it's weird with those with those um, films. I do really want the, like the hardcover or the hardcover, the the physical version of it versus just a digital copy. I feel like I watch it more often when I have physical mm. discs. Yeah, I used to feel that way, but um, I'm starting to go the other way where it's like, so I, I was watching um, a David Tennant episode of Doctor Who the other day, and I have all the DVDs, and I watched it on Netflix. I, I just like, I could, oh, yeah. I could <laughs> find the disc and get it out and pop it in and sit through all the menus and then finally get to the episode, or I could go boop, 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 and then it was on <laughs> Netflix, and then I could switch to my iPad when I wanted to go in the kitchen and watch it there. And Dan, what about you? Well, you know, it's interesting that you said that about the, the DVD thing. Because I just remember watching TV once uh, in, in college, and a movie came on that I owned, and we just sat there watching it, and like <laughs> what there was commercials, <laughs> and, and we're like, I kind of looked at my friends, and we're like, you know, we we own this, right? Like, I gotta just walk over there and get it. They're like, eh, it seems like a lot of work. <laughs> no, but I I don't I don't really buy. I'm kind of like Ren. I don't really buy movies anymore. I I used to for a long time, but I, I think I amassed my collection of like movies that I really felt like I needed to own. And also when you have that streaming, you know, option, you kind of have that option to watch a lot of the movies you love whenever you want. Uh, I've almost never bought a digital movie. I think I've bought mm. one or two just because there's there's no point to it for me, at least when when it, it, it consumes so much hard drive space, which isn't as much of an issue now, both because hard drives have gotten bigger and because iTunes and a lot of other services sort of let you buy it and then you don't have to like download a copy yeah. of it unless you want to put it on a device that's someplace where you don't have internet. It was so nice to buy, to buy those Godfather movies and not have them start downloading. It's like, no, no, right. just leave it in the cloud. Right, just leave it there and I can like click <laughs> onto it at some point. But it's also still oftentimes, unless you run into one of these sales, it's often not worth it. Yeah. Like uh, it's, you know, I want to, I don't want to watch a movie so many times that I'm willing to pay to own it i'm perfectly happy paying the four or five dollars it takes to rent it i mean to me that's that's pretty much well within the the realm of yeah i'll pay five dollars right. unless, to watch unless you're going to watch it more than four times you'd be better right, it's off not, it's not worth it just renting it again when you want to watch it again or waiting until it comes onto netflix or, yeah. or amazon or something like that and that's the other thing is that there's a value proposition with how much do i need to see this movie right now i love having the option on the apple tv to say like Oh, you know what? I really did want to see that movie. Uh, it's not out on Netflix yet. All right, well, we'll just pay five dollars and I'll watch it. Like you know, that's that's a great option to me to be able to go through that sort of cascading yeah. checklist of is it free? No. Can I rent it? Sure. Okay. Done. You know, like that's. I wish there was a little bit better way to manage. Like rather than having to go and check every single place. Go to can, yeah. And, well, can I yeah. stream it? Which can I stream it is great. Can I stream dot it. It's a great um, site that will tell you. I love where that. It is. I, I wish there was some some uh, build in with the Apple TV and made it a little easier from a living room perspective. And there might be someday. Well, <clears throat> if I care about the movie, uh, I'll buy it on, on, a, on disc. Yeah, on a yeah, Blu-ray. on Blu-ray, and I'll often rip it and store it on a server at my yep. house so that I can see it anywhere without having to deal with the DVD player. The Blu-rays that the I Blu-ray. have that don't have digital copies. That's exactly what I do. Is I yeah. pull, I want a digital copy. Yeah, but most of the time, like Serenity said, most of the movies that I watch these days, I don't care about them that much that I want to get all the extras and the director commentary and all that, and I, I inevitably stream probably most of the movies and most of the music that I listen to. I was resistant to that for a long time, but it's just so much more convenient in so many cases. The, 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 the cases where you really do want to buy it and have it are it's not just sort of like everything now it's just the stuff that you really really love and everything else yeah i i'm amused that i don't have a bluetooth a blue tooth yeah i have a blue i don't have a <laughs> blu-ray player 
I don't have a Blu-ray player, even though I've, you know, I've, I've have quite a few movies. My parents have a Blu-ray player, but they don't have an HD TV. <laughs> they have a 27-inch CRT. Oh, <laughs> this is just mind-boggling to me. I don't understand why how this has happened. I, I would love to get them to buy an HD TV, but that's a problem for another day. Yeah. So we're down to one more, uh, one more topic, I believe. Yes, um, I wanted to talk about Elon Musk's crazy uh, proposed invention, the Hyperloop, uh, because. I think it's awesome. <laughs> um, honestly, as as somebody who's been a little bit obsessed about various ways that we can travel that don't involve our feet, um, I really, really liked planes when I was little and toyed with the idea of becoming a pilot. Um, and my oh, I sister, you were going to say becoming a plane, and I was going yes. to say that was an unrealistic dream. <laughs> I want to be a race car. Yeah. So uh, our entire family has been a little, a little bit. Uh, driving and and flying and new technology obsessed. Uh, So when the rumors started coming out about Hyperloop and cross between a railgun and a Concorde jet and an air hockey table, I'm like, okay, this this has got to be cool, right? And then the plans came out, what, on Monday, Tuesday? Yeah, earlier this week. Something like that, earlier this week. Um, And it basically looks like an enclosed – set of monorails combined with those tubes that you see in the bank where you stick a thing in and then it shoots all the way It's a little capsule in a pneumatic tube. tube. Yeah, pretty much, Uh, which is still pretty awesome. Floating on Um, your hockey air. (laughs) Yes, floating on minimal minimal air in a a tube and keeping itself steady by having an air vacuum in the front of it that sucks in air and then Mm -hmm. shoots it out the back. Seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah, well, at seven hundred so, miles an hour. At seven hundred miles an hour, and you know, as somebody who lived in both Los Angeles and San Francisco and had to frequently go between the two uh, when I was living there, the idea of having a thirty-minute ride from the two that doesn't involve going to the airport is really quite uh, quite thrilling, especially if it involves bringing your car along. I, looking at the like, I spent I don't know about forty five minutes looking at the actual document, and though my math is rusty enough that I couldn't immediately look at the calculations and say yes, this is absolutely theoretically possible, which is why I googled it and found more uh, more math related uh, opinions of people who are who are smarter than I, and it does look like it is theoretically possible. Uh, there are some concerns. I know people have been floating around about heat sinks. Uh, the, the the heat uh, dissipation that Elon Musk was proposing with uh, using water coolants maybe not quite enough uh, for for uh, the tubes to go as fast as they want to go. But on the whole, people are, are fairly positive. The real question is whether or not it's actually going to get built. I, I feel like it's not going to get built for 20, 30 years. And even so, if it does, it's going to get built, you know, in a theme park somewhere as a proof of concept like, like the, the monorail. monorail. Exactly. So I'm, I'm really excited about it, but I don't think ever anything's ever going to happen, and it makes me really sad. So I, I was wondering what what you three thought of of the hyperloop, and whether is it is it practical? Do you think anybody's ever going to build it? A couple things. One, like many of you, I probably also remember a similar announcement from about a decade ago about a transportation device that would change the <laughs> way that we we dealt with the world and <laughs> cities would be built around it and. And right now, I think pretty much the only thing they use segways for is like 
at startup companies and at those like tours that go around cities. So that I was turns out in that's Austin, kind of Texas, and there were segways everywhere, man. But I think it was <laughs> I mean, all tourists, and it was a hundred. It's also Austin, degrees, so, Austin yeah. Texas. So yeah. I, I think that's one of those problems with the uh, transportation is is one of those things that's really hard to reinvent. Um, on the one hand, I'd love to see better train travel. On the other hand, I can't see how this would work in a lot of places. I mean, Los Angeles to San Francisco, there's not a ton between those two, so like that might be possible, but like. If you compare Boston that to the to Northeast Corridor, yeah, that's not going to happen. There's just there's too much stuff. Um, yeah. It's going to be really hard to build that. So, uh, and my you know my interest is also somewhat selfish. I, my father doesn't fly; he really doesn't like flying. But I also don't think I'm going to be able to convince him to get into <laughs> a pressurized tube, tube that goes 700 miles an hour. So, so I'm not sure that solves that problem either. Um, I, I love the idea. I really wish train travel were better in this country. Having you know spent some time in Europe and elsewhere, it's 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 so much better there that it's not even funny. Uh, and yet, you know, I, I have a lot of relatives who try to take the train in sort of those places that the train isn't. You know, the Boston to to Washington D.C. corridor is pretty good. You try to ride a train almost anywhere else, and it's it's a mess. So I, it's I'm, doable, I'm optimistic but... about the hyperloop, but I feel that I. Don't think anything's going to happen with it. I think this is probably just another segue like pipe dream in the long run. Yeah, it's heresy to say this these days, but it's something that the government should build, I think. Um, who else is going to come up with the capital yeah. to invest you know, that much money? I kind of think that's Musk's point is don't spend the money on the California high-speed rail. Spend it on my tubes instead, all right? <laughs> that's sort of what he's saying. Wait, well, wait, they the can't even that. build the high-speed rail though because yeah. you know, there's so many – so many hurdles, you know, nobody wants it in their backyard. Everybody's worried about impact on the environment. Nobody wants to pay taxes to, you know, to fund the project. Um, but, I, you know, I just don't see any other way of doing it. I don't, I don't see even Iron Man coming down and, and, and you know, saying, well, I'm going to bless the world by building this thing out of my own pocket. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm excited by it just because I think it's a clever idea. But unlike Tesla, which reinvented the car, but it was taking the car that everybody knows and then trying to come up with a different uh, uh, usable, saleable pr- propulsion system. Uh, unlike SpaceX, which is taking essentially NASA-style technology and bringing it to the private sector and making some innovations, this is – um, something that's being built on top of nothing. It's kind of an old idea that's also a new idea. And that's great, but I, I, it's not perfecting something that's already out there. It's this completely new thing. And so as, as a result, I think that, yes, the most likely scenario is that somebody built, will build to test one of these somewhere and it's going to be decades before people are comfortable enough with the technology in small uses to, to um, go in on spending the money for, for the big uses of it. So... Um, I will say, though, that uh, my favorite moment of the day that the Hyperloop was uh, was released is that I saw their uh, their samples and I realized that it resembled a toy I had when I was a kid, which was my, one of my my favorite toy when I was a kid were the Micronauts, which were little uh, action figures that had interchangeable parts and they were all the same scale. So you could put any person in any vehicle and you could kind of take the weapon from one and attach it to the other. And they had this thing called rocket tubes where you could uh, stick them in a little little car inside these air tubes that were propelled by a little fan that you plugged into the wall and they could shoot around really fast and there there's a, a a commercial for them that's up on YouTube that I found and it's basically the hyperloop in plastic form from 1977 and I thought that was uh, pretty cool and that's why I wanted before we go for our quick bonus round to ask all of you um just really quickly what was your favorite toy when you were a kid serenity 
I think my my most memorable toy is uh, one of the Razor scooters, one of the very, very early ones where it wasn't push like it was just push propelled. But seriously, as a like, I don't remember when I how old I was when they came out, probably 10 or 11, somewhere in that in that um, age range. And to me, this was the coolest thing in the world, because if you wanted to get somewhere quickly and not walking, you either had to. Get your parents to drive you, which was boring. You had to take a bike, which meant you had to chain the bike somewhere, and you had to take a Uh. bike helmet, and then you had to carry it everywhere. You had to take roller skates, which meant that you had to take shoes if you wanted to go inside any place. Actually, I was a Legos fan. I mean, that's Uh. that's kind of dull, but I loved – I had so many, like, in fact, I still have them, and my mother would really like if I got them out of her attic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But I had a – I would build these extensive – worlds on the floor of my bedroom and then have these ongoing like plots and stories like a tv show kind of that i acted i had like like space legos doing so that that was really far up there the other one being um action figures from this tv show called mask it was a cartoon in the 80s and it was basically all these guys who formed this like super team that had vehicles that would turn into other vehicles like a a a motorcycle Uh, that turned into a helicopter the transformers without the robot yeah, and they all had helmets that they, that had special powers, like could like, they shoot did. laser beams or you know other crazy stuff. So, and Mike, what about you? No, I had uh, space figures. The main guy was Major Matt Mason. This is in the uh, late sixties. Wow, uh, they were about a th- probably a third of the size of the you know the old full size GI Joes, uh, and they had, but they were space adventurers, and they had all of these cool vehicles. And you know, these days you can't have it. Uh, toy without having a TV show tied into it. This was, you know, this there was no TV show, there was no cartoons. It was just Major Matt Mason and his crew. And I had a, friend, a neighborhood friend, and we would just explore space for hours with those things. It was really fun. Well, we've been carefully watching the clock, so that's literally all the time we have left. Michael Brown, thank you for being here. Oh, it was great fun. Thank you. And Serenity Caldwell, thank you as well for being here. Thank you for having me. So until next time, from all of us here at Clockwise, watch what you say. And please keep watching the clock. Clockwise.